0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our uh, study is, That I May Know Him. That I May Know Him. That's the title. And the title comes from a verse that we're going to look at in a minute. But uh, before we do, I just want to mention a few thoughts. I want to tell you what we're going to talk about before we talk about it so that uh, you can see where we're going. And uh, knowing Christ, of course, uh, you can tell by the title, that's that's the subject matter. Uh, knowing Christ, biblically, not knowing about Him, knowing of Him, but knowing Him as the Bible presents that knowledge is the most important knowledge there is. That's what our salvation is based on. And uh, because of its immense importance, there is a most overwhelming obstacle and barrier that prevents us from experiencing that knowledge to its full extent. And that obstacle and that barrier, that overwhelming barrier, is called ruthless pharisaical legalism. Okay? That's the overwhelming obstacle that stands in the way between the religious churchgoer and the true biblical knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're going to explore this, this uh, claim that, that I just made, that this, this hypothesis that I put forward before. We're going to explore that in detail. We're going to explore it through the life of someone who went through that experience, who overcame that obstacle and lived to tell the tale. And we will see that that experience actually has its parallel time and again in history, up to this very day in which we are living today, and and hopefully in the process we will see the way out as well. That's really what we're wanting to do in this study, so that we can come to the point where we can also say, I know Him. I know Him, that I may know Him. So let's go to this verse, Philippians 3, where this verse comes from, Philippians chapter 3. We'll turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church. And he relays to them some important elements. Philippians chapter 3. Now, if you have your Bibles or if you have your your mechanical device, whatever it might be... uh, Uh, we're going to be covering some fair ground, so I want us to be able to turn to our verses quickly. Is that all right? I don't have them on the screen, so that doesn't give me a lecture. And I want to leave people behind. So Philippians 3, beginning with verse 8, this is what the Bible says. Verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now verse 10, that I may know Him. That's where the title comes from. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Today is actually part one of of a three-part series. We're going to today be looking at that I may know Him. Tomorrow we're going to be looking at the power of His resurrection. And the next day we're going to be looking at What's the next one? The fellowship of his suffering. These three elements in verse 10. But here we want to focus on the first one. And in this uh, passage, Paul here mentions one specific thing in many different ways, in many different words. He talks about wanting and desiring to obtain the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's his subject here. Isn't that right? Righteousness by Faith and then different ways of expressing that as it's brought out here is he said he calls it that I may win Christ, isn't that right? Uh, That I may be found in him and that I may know him. That really is righteousness by faith. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that as much as dealing with an obstacle that prevents us from experiencing that. Then once we figure out the obstacle, we'll be able to move on, hopefully. Uh, But this was Paul's desire to win Christ, to be found in him, to know him. And Paul here is relating his experience to the Philippians of how he came to find Christ. How he came to righteousness by faith. How he came to win Christ instead of all these things. And uh, I don't think I need to ask anyone here. Do you want righteousness by faith? The very fact that we're here at camp uh, and present reveals that we desire something. And in this beautiful promise, Jesus said there is a blessing for such people. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall... Receive a meager amount. Is that what it says? They shall be filled. And according to the measure of our hunger and our thirst for this righteousness, we will receive. And Paul here tells us about how he found and how he was filled. But before he found and before he was filled, there was something. We're going to look at that. When I mentioned the the date... 1888, what immediately comes to your mind? Righteousness Righteousness by faith, so an Adventist uh, person, 1888 is equivalent to righteousness by faith and the reason of course is simple, it's because uh, in history that's the time when this message came And when this message came, sadly, it was not really uh, received Uh, and all kinds of problems developed. It was rejected by most people. And uh, up till this day, the very fact that when we say this date, most people will know what we're talking about indicates that there is an interest. There is a desire to understand what 1888 was all about. And you know, there are there are books that have been written and research papers and documentation and all kinds of material explaining 18. 88, and what it was all about. Have seen some of them? Big, thick books, you know, thinking, boy, 18, that must have been some serious, complicated message. I have to read all these books, and all these scholars, and all, and there are the 1888 experts, and then there's an, actually a whole committee, 1888 message study committee. Have you heard about it? And they do excellent work. I'm not, I'm not knocking that, but all that reveals that there is a desire, an earnest desire, to obtain this thing that came in 1888, that somehow we missed it and we really, really want it. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing to earnestly seek and desire that. You see, what was happening here in the experience of the Apostle Paul is, he is telling us about his 1888 experience, so to speak. It's when he experienced the Gospel. Righteousness by faith and what happened there. And as we look at the experience of Apostle Paul and we look in history in 1888 and we look at what's happening today, we see some incredible parallels. That's what we'll be exploring a little bit today. But before Paul came to this knowledge of the gospel, he had a certain experience. Before Paul received the gospel, understood the gospel, before he found Christ, before he won him, before he knew him. He had a certain experience and this is where it starts getting interesting because the experience of Paul is very, very much a pattern for many today. You see, Paul was not a worldly man. He was not a godless man. Paul was a religious, spiritual man raised in a religious Jewish home. He was a man that was faithful to God who loved him and he obeyed what God had to say. Isn't that right? And we'll explore that, like I said, in a minute. As a matter of fact, he was uh, not only a member of God's chosen people, but he was educated by one of the most outstanding spiritual leaders in his day, and that is Gamaliel. And so he, he had this type of experience, and that's important for us to understand. And in light of these facts, despite all these experiences that Paul had, and what he was, his, uh, his this passage that we just read reveals that even though he had all this, he did not have Christ, he did not have the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now that should say something. You see, all these things that are wonderful and good actually served as an obstacle for Paul. And his experience reveals to us how he overcame that particular uh, obstacle and in order for us to appreciate what paul became we need to understand what he was in order for us to appreciate the transition and the transformation and to really fully understand what he became as a christian we need and must understand what he was before that and that's the way he actually portrays it here uh, because what he became was actually the opposite of what he was. What he became was the opposite of what he was. You see, this obstacle to the gospel still exists today. What we're talking about here in the experience of the apostle Paul, this obstacle still exists today. And this obstacle does not exist for the worldly person or for the godless person. This obstacle exists among church-going religious people. An obstacle that prevents them, us, because see what we're talking about, it's us, from really knowing and understanding and appreciating what Christ is, and understanding and appreciating righteousness by faith. This is an obstacle in the church, and we will see that, but let's see how Paul uh, puts it here. Uh, In Philippians, we're still there, let's read from verse 4. Notice what Paul describes, his experience as, before righteousness by faith came to him. Verse four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now here's the, here's the impressive list that he gives us. Verse five, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what Paul was. Now I want us to keep in mind something, and I'm going to come back to it in a little while. When Paul here says Pharisee, that's not a bad thing. The way he's writing, and the way he's using Pharisee, we tend to read Pharisee today and say, oh, that's a bad thing. Uh, that, that's true, but in Paul's day, and in Paul's understanding, and the way people understood things back then, a Pharisee was actually a very high commendation. A Pharisee was someone who held God's instructions and the rules very highly. The Pharisee was a religious person that was looked up to by the people. And we're going to, like I said, look at that a little bit in detail. But I just want us to keep that in mind. Paul is mentioning things that are advantageous. Things that are to give benefit and gain. That's why he's mentioning and saying, look, I want to tell you something about me. I was all these good things. Okay, that's the point he's making. I don't want us to miss that. You see, the Pharisees were considered the guardians of the oracles of God. You realize that? The Pharisees were the rabbis of the day. They would love to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. They were very religious. They actually had dedicated their whole life to full-time ministry. Obeying God's instructions. And of course they had so many that they added to as well that it was a full-time job just keeping up with all the rules and regulations. And it was a very high distinction and a very high honor. And that's what Paul really is mentioning here. But even though it was a high distinction, and it was a high honor, that actually turned to be a curse. And we see all these woes that Christ pronounced on, over the, par- the Pharisees. That's why today we look at it in a negative light, but it wasn't so in those days. And that's just important to keep in mind. But even though Paul had all these things, much zeal, much faithfulness, and persecuting the church and the righteousness which is the law blameless, Paul did not have Christ. Now there are two aspects here that I want us to not to miss. Two aspects that Paul mentions. He mentions his heritage, being a Hebrew, isn't that right? And he mentions his obedience, correct? And these two aspects, Paul says, I was all these things. If anyone can have anything to boast about, I have more. I was a true born and bred Israelite. And of all the Israelites, I was in the class of Pharisee. That's the people who have nothing to do in their life except obey God day and night. As a matter of fact, when it came to the law, Paul says, I was blameless. So Paul is trying to give us a picture. He's trying to paint a picture of where he was spiritually as a member of the Jewish church at the time. And that's significant for us to keep in mind. Now, we read this list and we think, yeah, these are good points and so on. And perhaps the impact, that's what I'm trying to do here and going into detail about it. The impact perhaps doesn't hit us as much. So let's apply... Paul's impressive list of qualifications as we would interpret it for today and as we read the same list with today's current understanding maybe you will appreciate it a little bit more and it starts hitting home a little bit more because if Paul was alive today his description would have sounded something along these lines and this is from verse 5 this is where we're going to start reading it in modern language. I was born and raised in the church. As a matter of fact, I'm a fifth generation Adventist. I was baptized in my teens and I'm a member in good and regular standing. When it comes to the law, I'm a conservative. Not like some others. Concerning zeal, I don't tolerate heresy or heretics. I love to quote Sister White to people who disregard what she says. And when it comes to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, well, brother, I'm just in harmony with them. You could say, blameless. Does that sound a little bit more familiar? Here's the question. Does that sound like you? You don't need to answer. But as we look at this aspect and as we put up a picture The purpose of this message really is for each and every one of you and me, is to look at this picture and to see if that picture is actually a mirror. You know what I mean? Because brothers and sisters, this is the biggest obstacle in the way of experiencing righteousness by faith. Not for the people in the world, not for the unchurched, the people on the street, for people in the church. And that's what, that's what Paul's experience was about. So that's what I want us to think about it. as we look at these aspects, as we look at this picture. I want you to examine your heart. That's what Paul was like. And these things that are all very good and well, I'm going to examine them in a minute, but all these good and well things that sound excellent, this list that I just read, that sounds very good. And, uh, you know, a lot of us could uh, relate to that in some way, shape, or form. These good things actually can serve to be an obstacle, an obstacle that is almost impossible to surmount. And I want us to see how we can get around this obstacle. Why is there a problem in these things that are good in and of themselves? Verse four is the key. Let's look at verse four again. We're just analyzing this passage, different aspects of it to see the fuller picture. Verse four is the key to where the problem really lies. He says, though I might also have confidence In the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then he gives this list. Where is the problem? Confidence. Confidence and trust in these things. Isn't that right? Pride. Yes, and that generates, of course, pride. Thank you. Putting confidence and trust in these things is where the problem lies. Not in the things in and of themselves. Confidence and trust and assurance and leaning heavily upon them. And Paul says, all these things are of the flesh. Pride of heritage is of the flesh. Isn't that right? Your genetic line He's saying, I am of the tribe of Benjamin in Hebrew. I have a genetic advantage. That's what he was saying. And the next thing is pride of performance or obedience. I also am very obedient. And he calls these things trusting in the flesh because all of them are of the flesh because your obedience is your own doing. Isn't that right? Your obedience. Now remember, he was speaking about a time when he did not have Christ. And he thought he had the truth. He thought he had God and all these things. And he's revealing to us a deception that he experienced In order to help us, to help the Philippians and help us, those who are reading it. And so, these things are of the flesh. And as the brother mentioned, these are the basis of pride. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is the problem of Laodicea. Who is really naked and destitute of all things. But they have no idea. They think they're all good and wealth. That's the same problem here we are dealing with. You know, I have never mentioned this list that I read in modern terms. You know, you don't necessarily hear someone say that whole list in one mouthful. But every now and then you hear different aspects of it, if you know what I mean. Never have I heard someone mention those aspects shamefully or like it was a bad thing. It's always mentioned as a good thing and a positive thing, even with some sense of pride. Isn't that right? Are you like that? Am I like that? Because like I said that thing in and of itself is not the problem, but we take a certain pride in these things. We put a certain confidence, though it might be subtle, yet it is still there. And that reveals something about where we are up here. And that's what Paul is doing. And that's why I'm taking my time to really, you know, uncover this because it is deep-rooted, it is very subtle, especially among conservatives. Now, I think if I ask the question, would you consider yourself liberal or conservative, I think we'd all put our hands up and say we are conservatives. We were in this class. I I put myself in the same class. But there's a problem there as well. Because in saying that, we immediately say we are not those people that don't do all these things that they should do, but they don't do. We are in this group that does all these things that we should do, and we are doing it. Isn't that right? That's what the term has come to signify. The liberals are the ones who have nothing, everything going when it comes to music, food, dress, whatever. They do whatever it is. But the conservatives, they're the more law keepers. That's what the term signifies. And of course, that's the the equivalent of, of of the Pharisees back in Jesus' days is today the which group? The conservatives. the conservatives, okay good, everybody knows that, alright, so I'm, I'm talking to the right people. But you know what I mean brothers and sisters, isn't that right? We have a serious mental problem that serves as an obstacle for people in this particular group, for us, and we want to uncover that. As a matter of fact, our trust and our confidence grows in these things so imperceptibly that without realizing it, it begins to shift from where it ought to be to these things. And the evidence is this, (coughs) these things that we do and that we are become the definition of our faith. Did you get that? These things that we do and that we are become the definition of our faith. For example, you ask, brother, what are you? Well, I am a conservative, I attend these camps, I do this, I do this. We start listing off all these things as a definition of what we are, or a definition of our faith, or someone asks, what do you believe, or, or what, what do you, what's your stand on this on that, we many times are quick to say, well, I'm a conservative. You know, someone say, well, what about, uh, uh, like, female ordination, what do you think, well, I'm conservative, and we start to use these things as a definition for what we are, isn't that right? And that reveals a thinking. If our trust is, no matter how small, no matter how great, but no matter how small, if our trust is in things, what we are, what we do, then our trust is misplaced. Our confidence is misplaced. Now you might say, well, I I am not like that. Well, that's, that's excellent. I just hope as you examine your heart, the purpose of this is to challenge you and me. To really see where we are and where do we place our trust, where do we place our confidence. Uh, Many times, sadly, when it comes to defining our faith, we use these things and mention all these aspects. And Christ is strangely missing from that definition of faith, many times. You will find that there's all these labels and and you know in the Adventist world there's a certain lingo, Right? There's all these phrases and conservative and liberal and this camp and, that, and there's all kinds of names. And, and we, we define, we, we place ourselves by different terms. We say we're this one, not that one and all these aspects. And somehow in this big mix of words and theological terms, someone goes missing. Christ goes missing. Amen. The only valid definition of faith for a believer in Christ should be Christ. That is where salvation is found. Nowhere else. And uh, I, I don't, wanna, though, don't want you to feel bad I'm talking about conservatives. Uh, you know, and the conservative aspect of things, is the problem doesn't only lie in the conservatives. Uh, the, the liberals, as, as they are referred to, you know, those who are liberal, many times are just as legalistic as the conservatives, if not more. The same Pharisaic spirit exists, and we're going to explore that a little bit and see if that, how that is the case, because you might say, oh, that sounds strange, but there is a common denominator. There was a common denominator between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Both did not have Christ, isn't that right? Both opposed and fought against Christ, because Christ was a threat to what they are. The same thing exists today. But the, spearheaded, the, the the those who spearheaded the the, the thing, and, and those that Christ had the most trouble with were the Pharisees. But it doesn't mean that the liberal, uh, the Sadducees, were not. You know, that's the parallel today: Pharisees, conservatives, Sadducees, liberals. Isn't that right? I think we generally all see that. But let's look at the next section here. We, I want to go into this aspect: the Pharisee, the conservative, and the legalists. The Pharisee, the conservative and the legalist. Before Paul became a Christian, he was a Pharisee. And many people today in the church are stuck in the same place where Paul was, thinking that that is the sum of religion. You see, Paul thought that God approved of him. You realize that? Paul thought that he pleased God and that God was very happy with him when he was all these things. He was circumcised the eighth day. As touching the law, he was blameless, and he put confidence and trust in these things as a commendation in God's eyes. Isn't that right? All the more so because these things were instructions that God had given. He had a good reason to think that. Isn't that right? There were instructions uh, and commands that God Himself had given. And to be very, very safe, these Pharisees had added even more commands and instructions to ensure the safety and the carrying out of God's instructions. And all that turned out to be the big bad mess that we see a little later. And that's why I called it cold, ruthless, Pharisaic legalism. Because it ended up murdering the Prince of Righteousness. That mindset is so opposed to Christ that the two are incompatible. And that's seen very clearly in the experience of Paul. So what about the Pharisee, the legalist, and the conservative? Paul gives three names. I want to explore this a little bit, like I said I would. He he refers to himself as a Pharisee. He refers to his zeal, and he says, I was persecuting the church, and he refers to the law, and he says, I was blameless. Three things, the Pharisee. What was a Pharisee? Like we said a little bit earlier, a Pharisee was someone who had committed his life to obeying the rules, the rules, the rules. That's how you could summarize the life of a Pharisee. It was all about the? The rules, the rules to dress, the rules to wash, the rules to pray, the rules to do this, the rules to do that, the rules, the other thing. And you can see that because they constantly followed Christ and they hounded him because he disregarded their God, the rules. He did not disregard God's rules. He disregarded all these rules and interpretations that they had added to it and burdened God's message with. And they constantly had a problem with him. They lived by a strict code of do's and don'ts. Isn't that Right. You know, one time they had a problem with the disciples. They how come the disciples, they don't wash. You don't have to wash up to here. And, and, and how come they're doing this? How come you're sitting with sinners? How come you're doing this? Everything in their experience was do's and don'ts. And they saw Christ and they judged Christ based on their ideas. Oh, look, he's doing this. Oh, he's not doing that. He's doing this. He's not doing that. And in the process, they missed everything that he was saying. Isn't that right? Yeah. That's what a Pharisee is. Now keep in mind, I'm not just talking about people who lived 2,000 years ago. The Pharisees were, were an exclusive uh, sect in Judaism, but uh, I think we all know there are more Pharisees today than there ever was in the days of Jesus. <laughs> Pharisees are breeding today like mads. They're everywhere. And you know what? Phariseeism is a plague and a disease That is so contagious and dangerous. It's spreading like wildfire. And it's causing all kinds of problems. When it comes to Christ. You see this over indulgence. And over fixation with the rules. The rules. The rules. Left the Pharisee no time. For heart examination. They were too busy. It was a full time job. Keeping all the rules. Keeping the law. We see a. an aspect of this in Matthew 23. Let's go to Matthew 23. One verse where Jesus talks to them about these things. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And we will look at verse 23. Easy verse to remember. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and common and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy and faith. These ought ye have to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus said, you are so meticulous. You are so careful about the rules that even the mint and the Anise and the cumin, you pay tithe over that. You might have a little veggie garden in the the back of your house. And even when you grow a little mint, you you make sure you tithe that little mint. And that cumin and the anise. And you, in the process, have missed the big picture. Judgments. Mercy. And what else? Faith. And in the parallel passage in uh, Luke, it says, and the love of God. So here was a Pharisee who was expert at keeping the the, uh, the rules, to the minutest detail. You know, that's pretty commendable. To to tithe even your mint, you know. How many of us do that today? Well, we don't necessarily, but you know what I mean? To the minutest detail. And Jesus said, in the process you have missed judgment, discernment, right and wrong. Mercy, their hearts were cold and ruthless. Faith, it was a faithless religion. It was based on the flesh. Everything that they did. There was no faith there. And they missed also the love of God. There was no love of God in their hearts. They were murderers. (laughs) That religion is actually a satanic religion. Isn't that right? If God is not in it, then where is it? Where is it from? And Isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? You are of your father who? The devil. Phariseeism. Legalism is satanic religion, and it's alive and well today, among God's people, and it's the biggest obstacle in the face of righteousness by faith. You with me, you're seeing what we're saying? You see this was the problem in 1888, 1888 was rejected because of this. As a matter of fact, let me read to you a statement here from the Spirit Prophecy that I think some of you are familiar with, but writing and commenting about 1888, because in 1888 the message of righteousness by faith came to the church, isn't that right? To a church that considered themselves as the commandment keeping people of God, and that was said with some sense of pride, isn't that right? After all there were no other churches that could make that claim, keeping all 10 the remnant people of God. That's a great and good thing. But <laughs> brothers and sisters, we take pride in these things. I was born and raised in church and these terms are drilled into you. And you know that we have the truth. All these people out there, they don't. That means we are far advanced than them. That's what it translates to in most people's minds. And in this church that was keeping the commandments, this this message, God in His mercy sent this message of righteousness by faith. And this is what Mrs. White says in, in the 1888 materials, page 557. It says, it is true, men will say, you are too excited, you are making too much of this matter, righteousness by faith, and you do not think enough of the law. Now, you must think more of the law Don't be all the time reaching for this righteousness of Christ, but build up the law. She says this is what people were saying in response to the message that was preached, right? In 1888. So these people felt that there was too much emphasis on Christ and not enough emphasis on the? the, On the law. Are you like that? 1888 was rejected because of that. And this is what she continues to say. She says, let the law take care of itself. We have preached the law until we have become as dry as the hills of Gilboa. You familiar with that statement? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and without dew or rain. Yeah. So here's Mrs. White saying there was a group of people in the church whose whole focus was the law. And when we say the focus is, is the law, what's that mean? It's the rules. It's the do's and the don'ts. What kind of person is defined by that? It is a Pharisee. And she actually spells this out. She says, Phariseeism lay at the heart of rejecting this message of righteousness by faith. Then she goes on. Let us trust in the merits of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. May God help us that our eyes may be anointed with eye, eye salve that we may see. God helping us, we will draw nigh to him. And sees, he says he will draw nigh unto us. So this was the point. This was why 1888 was rejected. And you know what? The same problem exists today. Are you part of the problem? That's the question. Where is your focus? Where is your emphasis? That's what Paul was. That's where the problem is today. The next thing that Paul says, he said concerning zeal, persecuting the church. A Pharisee and a legalist is a persecutor. You can't help it. You know why? It's a natural outgrowth of living by the rules. Because then you will judge everyone by the rules. And those who do not conform to the rules are the enemy. And stone them or kill them or eliminate them or tarnish them or attack them. Or stalk them and follow them into their houses as Paul was doing. And dragging them before the council. Now, uh, the temptation always is when I say that and I share that, people say, yes, this, I can think of someone who does that. Good, but what's better is examine your heart, okay? That's, that's a heart examination. Many times we find ourselves falling in that trap unawares. Living by the rules inevitably leads one to becoming a persecutor. Anyone who differed with a Pharisee was considered a heretic and deserving of extermination. There is a meticulous drive to call others who disagree with you heretics, lust, deceived by Satan, on their way to hell, or whatever it might be. That's the danger. Are you like that? Uh, Paul was very zealous, not only, he was commissioned by the high priest and the the council, and he says, I'd go into their homes, I would drag them out, I would pull them in front of the council, I would cause them to blaspheme. Not only that, but not only in Jerusalem, but I chased them to other cities, and thank God he arrested him there on the way to Damascus, and Paul was converted. But there is this drive, it reveals to us that the mindset produces this drive to just chase Those that you feel are in the wrong. And you chase them for the purpose not to love them, but to reprove them, to punish them, to correct them. And if you could kill them. But there are laws today that prevent many people from doing what they feel in their hearts. You realize that? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said that to the Pharisees, murder is really here. When you hate a brother because he doesn't comply to the rules as you interpret them, you are no less of a murderer than were the Pharisees. Because you're moved by the same spirit. The spirit of persecution. And the spirit of persecution is many times manifested in endless tribunals of questioning. Endless tribunals of question. What does that mean? The Pharisees many times, and this is very well illustrated in the story of the blind man. I'll use it as an illustration. And then we'll draw some parallels for today. The blind man was healed by Jesus. Remember Jesus told him, go wash in the pool. He came back seeing. So they called him up and they said, what's this? How are you healed? So he told them. And they, they said, no, this doesn't add up. And they go, go get something else. And so get his parents. How was he healed? ask him, how are you healed? He said, I told you already. Then they took among themselves, Tell us, come on, how are you healed? And then in the end, you had to tell them, how many times are you going to hear it? I already told you. Are you going to believe him as well? <laughs> and he said, you're heretic, get out of here. What's that? Endless questioning. Do you stalk people that disagree with what you say or say something you don't like and endlessly question them and ask them, what do you believe? What do you believe about this? I want to know. And your purpose is to judge. What am I going to do with them? And you know what? This is so common today. People ask questions and the answer is given, they ask again and ask again and ask again because they want to see where this person fits in their rules, in their interpretations, in their doctrines, in their understanding, in their theology, whatever it might be. Something to be aware of. And the purpose many times, if they fail to bring them into line, with their thinking is that we'll go on a campaign to smear them and paint them in the worst light possible. That's a sign of a persecuting spirit. you realize that? That's what Paul was like. The last thing Paul says, and this is an outgrowth of that as well, and on, on all these things, remember, all these things are done believing that they are done for God's sake. Isn't that right? these things are done, thinking that they are doing God service. Christ talked about a class of people who will get to a point where they will kill, thinking that they're serving God. That's how blinding this mentality is. Final thing Paul says is, as touching the righteousness which is of the law, I was blameless. Praise God. You cannot point out an error or a fault in a pharisaical mind in the person, because in their eyes they are blameless, their practice is blameless, their faith is blameless, their scriptural interpretation is blameless, their doctrines are blameless, their theology is blameless, sermons blameless, conduct blameless, zeal blameless, persecuting their brethren blameless, we got to protect the truth brother, isn't that right, are you like that? Brothers and sisters, Paul was like that. And Paul is telling us, and that's why we're exploring this. Paul is telling us, says, listen, I was like this. As a matter of fact, I had confidence. I had trust in me like this. I thought I was doing good in God's eyes when I was like this. And many of many people who find themselves in, the, in this mindset, and if you find yourself in this mindset, what justifies is we think this is right. It must be right. There is a modern equivalent today for every aspect of Phariseeism, plus some, because the disease has grown to great proportions. A blameless person is really a proud person, isn't that right? And like we said with Paul, it was pride of heritage and pride of obedience. Pride of obedience today is expressed in many ways. I've never missed a Sabbath in my life. Have you heard that? Do you say that? That's a good thing, never to miss a Sabbath. But you know, when we say that, many times it's said with a sense of, I'm always, I've always been a vegetarian, never touched meat. Good for you. But what does that mean? In God's eyes. You see, these things, we have come to believe that they commend us in the sight of God. Isn't that right? How about this one? All my children are homeschooled. Excellent. That's what I'm planning to do if God sends me children. But what does that mean? And many times that's said to highlight a contrast between those who don't. Isn't that right? We grow our own food. We live in the country. Praise the Lord. That's what God says. But what does that mean? Is that where your confidence and trust is? Is that why you think God approves of you? beware. Pride of obedience. I studied at such and such university. I was taught by such and such professor. I went to such and such church, camp, whatever, fill in the blanks. We take pride in what we do as believers. And before long that trust starts going in these things. You with me? What about pride of heritage? I mentioned that already. I'm a fifth generation Adventist, I'm not, by the way, but I hear that from time to time. So i say, I'm a fifth generation Adventist, or a fourth generation, or if there was six, I don't know, maybe that's very rare, but uh, have you heard that? Now, if you're a fourth, fifth, or whatever generation Adventist, I'm not picking on you. But what's the point of saying that? I just want to understand. And many times I find that written, like when I'm going to read a book or something, it's written in the book about the author, right? Such and such person is a fifth generation Adventist, and, and blah, 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 blah. As if that has to commend what he says. And generally, what, the reason it's said is basically this, I believe. It's to give some kind of credibility to what they're about to say. Isn't that right? You, you, have you seen that or am, am I out on a limb here on my own? You've, you've seen that. You know, genetics, brothers and sisters, have nothing to do with our faith. That's Phariseeism. Like I said, I'm not picking on you if you're such and such, but but... I just want you to examine, why do we say these things? What do we mean? What do we understand? Are we putting importance and confidence in these things? Or my father was this conference president. My father was a GC president. My uncle was this uh, evangelist. So what? <laughs> when it comes to standing with God, so what? That is totally irrelevant to the point. Amen. And it actually serves as a block to righteousness by faith. The problem, like I said, is not in these things in themselves. It's in trusting and putting confidence in them. That was the problem that Paul pinpointed. Let's go back to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. That sneaky pride of heritage or pride of obedience. We need to be aware of that. Very, very careful when it comes to that. Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And he just told, and he goes on to tell us what all these things as far as the flesh concerned. He says, as a believer, now that I'm a Christian, all these things, I have no confidence in them. His confidence was placed somewhere else. Oh, the day would come when we would all have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Then all the things of the flesh will not make up a large subject matter of our conversations, of our thinking, of our trust, and of our confidence. Brothers, I'm, I'm, I'm going in, in slow detail here, painful detail, on purpose, because this problem is so pervasive. This problem is so subtle. This problem, I know by experience because I was like that. And I, pray, I say was because I pray that I'm over that by God's grace. But it is so prevalent, so very, very prevalent. And it is sad. Heaven weeps when God's people take confidence and trust in these puny, petty things. You think God is impressed because your parents were Adventists or your grandparents? That you say as if that impresses God somehow or you went to that college or that you've kept the Sabbath all year you think you've impressed God with that or you've never touched meat or whatever it might be you're a, you're a medical missionary evangelist praise the Lord but that does not impress God God was only impressed by one thing Christ His Son on earth you want to impress God that's what you need to have you can't impress Him any other way That's important to remember. Confidence, where is it placed? Where is it based on? And so Paul says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Welcome to the Gospel. When you start to get to this point, there's no confidence in the flesh. You are about to appreciate one aspect of the Gospel. Now before we go on, I just want to mention something, because I said it earlier, about the Sadducees being of a pharisaical mindset as well. Many liberals are legalistically liberal, if you know what I mean. No brother, we're not singing any hymns in the church. They are so opposed to what they perceive to be wrong, in a legalistic way, they've set up their own rules and ways. You see, a legalistic person is not necessarily obeying God's rules and laws only. They live by the rules and laws. And they've added to God's rules many. And many people who are liberal, they have a set of rules, a code of conduct that they legalistically hold to. You realize that? You see, legalism is not just, oh, I I keep all of God's laws and that's what I focus on. It is a mindset of living by do's and don'ts. And that mindset exists in both camps. But it is especially difficult because the conservative believes that all these rules are God's rules. This is God's law. And so I am definitely in the right. You with me? But the problem exists on both sides. So let's look at the the change, the turnover. Philippians 3, 7. Verse 7 is the key verse in this turnaround. We looked at the preview of that in verse 3, but verse 7 really spells it out. Philippians 3, 7 says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Amen. What things were gained to him? A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Zealous. A Pharisee. Blameless when it comes to the law. Obedient to all of God's instructions. Paul says, these things I counted what? Loss. I saw them for what they really are. These things that I thought were advantageous to me. They were gain to me. I thought they recommended me in God's eyes. I thought I was a favored person in God's eyes. Because of all these things. I came to a realization. That all these things were actually loss. They were a disadvantage. They were actually a block. That hindered me from seeing Christ. For who he really was. And these things many times today. Being born and raised an Adventist, being this thing and being that and going here and going there, they are perceived as advantages. But brothers and sisters, Christ is the only treasure. When we start looking at these things, what we are and what we do, we are taking, uh, like Paul says, you know, considering these things as gain. He says, what things that I thought gained to me, all the things that you are proud of, that you are happy about any Christian experience that you do, and that you are. If it's without Christ, these things you consider to be gain, that's how much you miss out on Christ. That's the key here. Paul counted these things as loss. Our obedience, our heritage, our faithfulness, our efforts, our achievements, accomplishments, our knowledge, our understanding, our theories, our doctrines, our scripture interpretations, etc, etc, etc. If we think any of these things are gained to us because we have them and the next person doesn't, we have not yet seen the value of Christ. I believe the truth, brother. And by that we mean a certain interpretation of one particular passage or a few passages. Let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is a person. Isn't that right? The truth is a person, not a set of theories or a set of interpretations or some sermons or some series you preach or some set of uh, fundamental beliefs you've written up. That is not the truth. That is maybe a written form of some aspects of the doctrines of the scriptures. But the truth, according to the one who said, I am the truth, is a person. That's when you have the truth. It never was theories and ideas and concepts. That's not what the truth is. That's important to keep it in mind. That's maybe the theory of truth. Like I said, I'm not downplaying these things, but I want you to see the contrast. You see what I mean? We've replaced Christ with a lot of good things and put it in the place of Christ and made that our Savior. Paul says, what things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. Two sides here, right? All these things are on one side and on the other side there is what? Christ. All these things and Christ. When you catch a vision of Christ, you will see the contrast between these two things. That's what Paul that's what happened to Paul. He saw Christ for what he really was. He says, "You know what? What a fool I was." All these things that I thought were gain to me, I now realize they were nothing. And less than nothing. As he says, let's keep going. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Here's an accurate description of what you will consider these things to be when you really see Christ. You will count them as dung. That's refuse. That is waste. I count them as dung. The only thing, as I said, the only thing that commends us in the sight of God is His Son. Period. You cannot add to that anything. Everything else, in comparison to that, is dung. That's what Paul says. And he, he's telling you about the point when he received the gospel. He's saying, listen, when I received the gospel, when I came to learn about this righteousness, which is of God by faith, that's what, I, that's what happened in my mind to all these things that I thought were good and advantageous to me as a religious, spiritual Jew. He's speaking to us today, brothers and sisters, as a religious, spiritual Adventist, conservative maybe. Have we caught a vision of Christ for what He really is? I do count them but dung. You see, uh, you know, dung, I really like that he used this word, because it can't can't get worse, right? That's how God considers all these things that we're so proud of. That's the dungy righteousness. (laughs) Isn't that right? The dungy righteousness. God says, it is filthy. Filthy rags. Isn't that what the Bible says? And you know, we all quote that, but have we fallen into the subtle deception while thinking we are safe? The Bible says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Stinky, filthy, dungy righteousness. It doesn't say all our righteousness, it says all our righteousness says, all our attempts, whatever they might be, at obtaining, gaining, having some righteousness that we can come to God with and say, God says, that is filthy, dungy righteousness, away with that. The only thing we can come to God with and be accepted, is His Son. That's why He that hath the Son, has everything. He has life, he has freedom, he has the truth, he has, he has the father as well, he has everything. Beware of that trap, of the filthy rags religion, because the filthy rags religion is all about self. That's what it is. It's all about self. Well, if you look at the list that Paul gave, I was a Hebrew, I was this, I was that, I did this, I did that, I accomplished this, I was all these things. It's all about self. It's a self righteous religion. That's the heart of the problem. And when self realizes its true worthlessness, only then can salvation come to that house, to that place, to that person. Paul saw that. The question is, have you seen that? That's the challenge. Because today we're living in an age, brothers and sisters, and we mingle among a class of people that is prone to this problem. It's like a magnet. Phariseeism is like a magnet that attracts so many people today because we know God's rules and God's laws and God's instructions and the writings and the testimonies and the compilations and all these things. And before long, subtly, our trust begins to shift. And that's why I voiced some of these aspects that I am sure you might have heard. And I pray are not things that you are and I am like. Let's go to verse 8, just quickly here, on the how of it. I'm not going to spend too much time here. I just wanted to highlight the problem as much, because once you see the problem, you're on your way to the solution. But if you think the problem is gain to you, there's no hope of a solution. Verse 8, he says, and be found where? In him. That's in Christ. In other words, Paul was outside of? Christ, You know, you can be all these things and do all these things and be outside of Christ. You can be obeying the law or attempting to and being all these wonderful things outside of Christ. He says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is where? From where? Of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. Here is the problem. Here is the solution right here. Paul had his own righteousness. Where did he obtain that righteousness from? according to the verse. He says, which is of the law. In other words, his obedience, he came to see as righteousness. And he says, this was my own righteousness. Any righteousness you obtain from the law, brothers and sisters, is selfish righteousness. It's self manufactured righteousness. It's by your own obedience. That's why he calls it the flesh. It's what you do. You know, many times, uh, Ahmed mentioned that story yesterday and it's a very important story You know, I picture that many times You know, here's the scene at like, the end of the world and this is not necessarily how it happens but just an illustration and here is God at the gate of heaven and here is a good Adventist and God says why should I let you into my heaven how do most Adventists answer that I was a good Adventist I kept the Sabbath all my Life, Jenny, this is a hypothesis, but this is what we think of in our minds. The, the, many people in the church, their preparation for the last days consists consists in solidly deciding in their mind that they will not keep Sunday when the Sunday laws are passed. Is't that right? Many people, this is their confidence they, they, they I have strong willpower and they they can put a gun in my to my head, but I'm not doing it. and they they are they feel that they are pretty ready to face the last days. They know what's coming, Sunday laws, and and they, they just have made a solid, willful decision that they will not give in. Brothers and sisters, we have seriously gotten confused. If that is the case. He says, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. According to this verse, how many sources of righteousness are there? look at it carefully how many sources of righteousness are there? there's two there's the righteousness which is of the law and then there's the righteousness which is of who? of God by faith isn't that right? he says I don't want to have my own righteousness which comes from the law I want this one here which is of who? of God, and I don't get this by obedience, I get this by faith, faith. here's the solution to this problem, by faith, because as was said in the verse, the law is not of faith, isn't that right, we we just read this verse, so Howard just read this verse, the law is not of Faith. faith, the law is what you do, you see, you do, it says do, you do, it does not have or generate or produce faith, Paul was saying, I was here, I had my own righteousness, which comes from my obedience to the law. But I don't want that anymore, because I realize what that really is. That is dungy righteousness. is that right? I want this one over here, the righteousness which comes from God. By faith. Righteousness by faith. Yes. Hello. That's what righteousness by faith is all about. That's what we all want. Isn't that right? 1888 and all that stuff. Here it is right there. And this is why Mrs. White said, listen, people, we've been talking about the law, the law, the law, until there was no more life in us. We're dry, like the hills of Gilboa. The righteousness which is of Christ by faith. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean the law is gone, because that righteousness which is of God, is what the law requires. But you can't get it from the law. Only one person obtained righteousness. Satisfactory in God's eyes. And he offers it to us, not through the law, through faith in him. And when we receive that righteousness, that righteousness is witnessed by the law and by the prophets as being true indeed, righteousness. But the law is not the source of it. See, Paul came to this realization and said, wow, here I was barking up the wrong tree. I'm going to the law to get righteousness, and all the righteousness that I get from the law is my own. But there is over here the righteousness which comes of God by faith. Who gets the credit for the righteousness that comes from the law? You do. Who gets the credit for the righteousness that comes from God? He does. You see the difference? not by heritage not by works not by effort not by striving not by anything other than genuine biblical faith is this accomplished and you cannot see that until you realize that what you think is advantageous and gain to you is really loss is to catch a vision of Christ this is really the solution righteousness by faith you know I talk about faith and and sometimes we complicate faith too much we, we start defining faith in a legalistic way, that faith is doing this and doing that and the other thing. Faith is really so simple. One time, uh, someone was uh, visiting a person and they were having dinner at the table and they asked them this question. They said, what is faith? Tell us what faith is. And it was kind of a spur of the moment question, not a theological discussion. And the answer was, you believe what your father tells you, don't you? That is faith. Okay. That conversation was with Ellen White. That's the answer she gave. You believe what your father tells you, that's faith. In know, time, another place, Mrs. White, uh, you know, had a conversation with the angel, and, and the angel told her this, faith is so simple, many look above it. They try too hard to believe. You see, because we, many times, we are ruled by this concept of the rules, the do's and the don'ts. We make, we take faith, and we try and apply all kinds of rules and regulations to faith, and complicate faith in the process. Faith, we're told, is simple. It is trusting and believing as you would your father. Righteousness is by faith. That's how we obtain that, believing and trusting. That's the new birth. Experience. I'm not going to go into details on that. I'm not talking about that a little bit tomorrow, so that that will cover that aspect. But I just wanted to deal with that problem in Colossians chapter two. We'll just, uh, yeah, that's the last verse worth we'll turning to. Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two. Realizing and appreciating the gift. The reason why we don't. The reason why we go on about all these things. Many times, it's we don't appreciate, we don't realize what we have been given in the gift. And so we, we, we don't see the value, so we see value in some other things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. Speaking of Christ, it says, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we really believe that? When you have Christ, you have all the tre- you have the whole treasure house, the whole library. You're not picking a book the shelf that deals with this topic or that topic, you get the whole universal library of wisdom and knowledge. You see, when Paul caught a glimpse of that, he said, you know what, what I had was dung compared to what I now see. Have we caught a glimpse of that? Not only in him, but a little later in the chapter in verse 10. He says, look, just drop down to verse 10. He says, and ye are complete, where? In Him. That's what Paul wanted to find, isn't that right? That I may win Christ and be found in Him. In other words, and to be complete. Amen. To be complete in Him. You see, brothers and sisters, our lack of realizing that completeness in Him is what many times drives us to talk about all these other things as completing us and defining what we are. You with me? We don't see what we have been given in Christ. This is this is the the, the heart of the problem. We lose sight of Jesus somehow. We start looking to all these things. But we are complete in him. We cannot and need not add anything to him. The righteousness we get from him is complete. He doesn't need a little bit of your obedience to make it up or to make it a bit personal. But once he is in you, once you're complete in him, it goes without saying that the fruit of righteousness will be born in your life. If you have the seed, the fruit will be the same as the seed. If you have the righteous one living in you, you can only produce righteous fruit. But the fruit is not what made you righteous. It's the righteous one living in you. That's righteousness by faith. That's what 1888 was all about, complete in Him. This is the complete definition of our faith, Him. If we are complete in Him, then we don't need to add anything to the definition of our faith. Isn't that right? Everything is in Him. Every single thing is in Him. Do we realize what we have in Christ? If you have Christ, you have everything. (coughs) Our problem today is we start to trust other aspects of our faith. The faith that we protect. The faith that we fight for. Which are good and well. But they were never designed to be trusted in or to put confidence in. God never gave us doctrines so that we might trust in them and put confidence in them. What we've done is essentially this. We have taken the road sign. We've come to the road sign. We're going to a destination. As we're traveling to this destination, we come on the road sign. It says it's that way. We've taken the road sign and we've stopped at the road sign and we have made it the destination. And we've camped under the road sign. And when the next brother comes along and he wants to go to the destination, if he doesn't stop and camp with us, we take the road sign and we whack him on the head. (laughs) And the road sign is what the Bible tells us, what points to. isn't that right? The, The law is designed to lead us to Where? Christ, we've come to the the road sign and we've camped and the next person is passing, whoa, whoa, this brother kept going, take the sign and whack him on the head and that's what we do. We take those verses, we talk these quotes and we... Brother it says, brother it says, all these things are good and well. Brothers this is not what our faith is about, this is not the religious experience that God intended for His people. God wants us to have Christ be complete in Him. There is another level that Paul realized. That I want us to realize, that's why we're sharing what we're sharing. The legalistic religion has no room for the new birth experience. It has no room for it. The legalistic religion is all about the rules. You just have to figure out all these rules and get to obeying the ones you haven't obeyed yet. Then you made it. It has nothing of the new birth. It has nothing of receiving the complete Christ. The complete life of Christ. It's actually strange news to the legalistic mind. He's saying, what? you're saying it's that easy. No, it can't be. What about all these rules? Saying, no, brother, if you believe, if you have faith, and you receive the life of Christ, you are complete in Him when you receive that. And to many people, that is too good to be true. And they miss out on the gift. Have you missed out on the gift? Are you still stuck in the rules? Or are you complete in Him? That's the question. Paul was so consumed... With this truth, he couldn't stop talking about it. In his letters, Paul rarely fails to mention this most excellent knowledge. We'll close with this. To the Romans, he said, to walk in newness of life. To the Corinthians, he said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. To the Galatians, he said, not I live, but Christ lives in me. To the Ephesians, he said, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. To the Colossians, he said, Christ in you the hope of glory over and over and over again Paul saw something and he never lost sight of that and he kept telling the believers look to Christ that's where everything really is and that's my message to you today brothers and sisters that you and I may know him and be found in him not having our own righteousness which is of the law but the righteousness which is of God by faith That's my prayer. Let's kneel together. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.